Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu touched down in Israel just before Yom Kippur set in, having packed in an intensive week in the United States and singing an optimistic tune about Saudi normalization and a bright future for Israel. For a moment, it seemed like the topic was successfully distracting attention away from the rifts in the country over his judicial overhaul and the religion and culture wars stoked by his far-right Orthodox coalition partners. But that only lasted for a moment. As the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, entered, all eyes were on Tel Aviv's Kikar Dizengoff. A public Yom Kippur prayer service held there became a flashpoint over the controversial issue of gender segregation in the public square. Joining us on the podcast to discuss what happened in Tel Aviv over the holiday is an expert and an attorney who has probably grappled with the issue of gender segregation more than anyone else in the country. Orly Erez Likovsky is the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center, the advocacy arm of the reform movement in Israel. Orly has worked at Iraq since 2004. She led the legal team making gender segregation on public transportation illegal and forced the mayor of the city of Beit Shemesh to remove modesty signs instructing women what to wear and where to congregate on public sidewalks. Orly, welcome to Haaretz Weekly, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. This is the way the Israeli media described it. Hundreds of protesters disrupting Yom Kippur prayer in Tel Aviv over the organizer, a yeshiva's plan to segregate between men and women attending the event. The protesters at Dizengoff Square yelled, shame, shame. They tore down the flags that were meant to be a temporary barrier between the genders. Yeshiva officials left the area shortly after, but some worshippers stayed, leading to verbal confrontation and sometimes physical confrontation between both sides. So this scene was all captured and circulated across social media, and the tensions remained high throughout the holiday. They're felt in other public prayer locations in Tel Aviv and the whole surrounding area across the country, actually. So Orly, we'll discuss the background, the facts, the context of the situation in a minute, but I'd like to start with your reaction as someone who's been fighting for gender equality over the years, but is also a practicing Jew. How did you feel when you saw Yom Kippur worship, of all things, disrupted like this? I think that all of us who have seen this images and heard about what happened felt really heartbroken. I think it was very hard to see Yom Kippur turned into a religious war. But on the other hand, I think it was inevitable. And it also marks a tremendous change in the attitude of the Israeli liberal public toward both issues of religious pluralism and of gender segregation. And in the sense, I think it's a very hard and difficult period, but it can also signal change into maybe a better future. I think it's important in the context of our conversation around this to know exactly what happened and who the organizers of this prayer service in Kikar Dizengoff were. Who and what are Rosh Yehudi, which was the yeshiva organizing the Kol Nidre prayer? So this is a national religious extremist organization placed in Tel Aviv. Their declaring intention is to basically promote Orthodox Judaism in Tel Aviv in the public sphere. They hold extremist view both religiously and in other respects. For instance, last week, 
They have invited Rabbi Igal Levinstein, who is known for his homophobic attitudes, to give a talk in Tel Aviv. And we're also met with uh, fierce protests because it's clear that they're trying to take on a secular and liberal Tel Aviv and bring into the public sphere in Tel Aviv illiberal views. So they have been doing this for quite a few years now, but I think they have met now with a reality that they have never met before so far. And this is due to the protest that is happening in Israel for the past nine months. Painting the picture of the reality that this happened in, for the past four years, beginning with the COVID-19 crisis and the popularity of outdoor worship for everyone, including the Orthodox who wanted to stay safe and not go inside a synagogue, the Tel Aviv municipality permitted gender-separated prayers between men and women, even in public spaces, including with the mechitza, you know, which physically separated the men and the women. This year, they decided to revert back to a no gender separation policy in public events that was imposed in 2018. So Rosh Yudi asks the courts to intervene and allow the physical separation of men and women at the event, despite the fact that the city of Tel Aviv said that they can't do it. The courts say no, and the decision of the city was supposed to stand. That was what would happen, as I understand it. Is that correct? The segregated service was allowed. The only thing that was not allowed is placing a mechitza, a barrier, between a men's section and a women's section, because the city council said that they have a procedure back from 2018 stating that there should not be any physical barriers which create gender segregation in the public sphere. So it was okay to hold the prayer, you know, for men and women to sit separately, but they were not allowed to put on a physical barrier. So that's what the municipality decided. By the way, Rosh Yudi did not petition the court. It's a different organization. That's interesting enough that they basically accepted it. Others petitioned to the district court. The court rejected the petition, stating that the procedure of the municipality is reasonable. We were talking a lot about reasonableness lately. Is reasonable and also talking about the substantive issue that the public sphere in Tel Aviv and elsewhere should be equal and people should not be restricted in where they go or sit in the public sphere. And that's why a barrier should not be allowed. And then they actually went and appealed to the Supreme Court, which quickly gave a decision rejecting the appeal and stating that what the district court had decided should stay. And again, talking about the need for gender equality in the public sphere, especially stressing that what could be more of a public sphere than this one of the central squares in Tel Aviv. The fact was that the courts rejected the petitions and therefore they were not allowed to erect a barrier. And nevertheless, despite the court rulings, they went and did place a mechitza, try to put a barrier on Yom Kippur Eve. And that's when the protest started. Is it true that in 2000, the Supreme Court ruled that enforcing gender segregation in public spaces is illegal if it infringes on the freedom of movement of individuals? And so therefore, it seemed like this group was trying to step through a loophole by putting up this metal chain with a bunch of flags hanging from it saying that, oh, well, you can pass back and forth. It's not disrupting movement. So therefore, we're not breaking the Mechitza rule. It's not technically a and that is why neither Tel Aviv municipality officials nor police decided to do anything about it. I don't think it was because of that. You know, basically they were sort of trying to put a mechitza which 
sort of looked temporary, although I understand it was made of actually metal poles on which they hung flags. So it was clear it was something that was meant to be a physical barrier. And, you know, that was explicitly written by the court. I think the municipality and the police did not intervene because they were afraid that, you know, intervening in this uh, regard would just create more violence. And actually they went and put into custody one of the protesters who tried to take down the Mechitza instead of actually, you know, taking the people who basically disregarded the court's decision. So I think it was a failed decision on the part of the police, on the part of the municipality, because what the protesters said is, you know, basically two things. First of all, it's a problem to force gender segregation in the public sphere. But second, and, you know, not less important, it's a complete disregard of the court's decision and disregard of the rule of law. And this, of course, echoes the government's policy and the attempt of the government to disregard the judiciary and to weaken it dramatically. So it was two things that were done that was completely against the law. And therefore, I think that they should have intervened intervened and they failed to do so. But in any event, the prayer could not go on because of the disruptions and the violence that ensued, which was very, very hard to watch. Yeah. So the protesters decided themselves to disrupt the services, which is why they didn't continue and go on. Can you address this whole who's in charge and enforcement of the rules, whether it's municipal rules, whether it's the rule of law? Because You've encountered this dynamic before when it comes to gender segregation, right? The decision is clear, decision of the courts, decision of the city, but no one really enforces it. Can you talk about the background of that? How and why does that happen? And is there any way to redress it or address it? It's true that with a lot of issues on gender segregation and other issues as well, we have problems of enforcement. So, you know, for now, the law is basically you know, on our side. I mean, the law, as it is interpreted by the courts, clearly states that gender segregation is not allowed. However, it's not always being enforced. You mentioned the issue of Beit Shemesh, modesty science. We've had a series of legal victories in courts, but unfortunately, some of the modesty science still hung in Beit Shemesh because there is sort of this cat and mouse game where, you know, the municipality takes down some of the signs and then they're being put back up again pretty quickly. It's usually a responsibility both of the municipality and the police. The municipality is in charge of enforcing municipal bylaws and municipal procedures. And of course, if there is concern of violence, then they should ask assistance from the police. And it's, of course, the police duty to make sure that the law is being enforced and to assist the, the municipality in this regard. We see it also in the context of vandalizing of female images on billboards. This is a phenomenon that happens quite often in Jerusalem and elsewhere in Israel. And again, this is the responsibility of the municipality, but the municipality does not do anything and the police does not do anything as well. We've taken the Jerusalem case to the court and the court already told the municipality that it has to take responsibility and to really deal with the issue very seriously. And unfortunately, they had not didn't do it so far. So it's clear that we have a big problem of enforcement. I think the awakening of the Israeli liberal public really changes things because it's clear that what people may have been willing to accept up until a few years ago or up until basically the last few months, people are not willing to accept anymore. And I think the really interesting thing is that people understand now that it's not only a fight for the democratic structure of Israel, it's really a fight about our Jewish identity. And since the reform movement have been promoting a vision of a tolerant and inclusive Judaism, which is in complete contrast to the narrow extremist, racist and homophobic vision that the government is promoting, we are now, you know, telling Israelis, you're right, of course, you have to take responsibility and ownership of Judaism and how it's being expressed in the Israeli public sphere. And I think the fact that Israelis are not longer willing to accept this 
is tremendous. And this in and of itself can create a difference. I think that the government and other authorities are susceptible to public pressure, even this government, and they understand that things are now have now changed. It doesn't feel like it was a lose-lose situation in Kikar Dizengoff because because you've had the protesters being portrayed as provocateurs who didn't let a prayer take place, who are anti-Judaism. Their other alternative was to sit back and not protest and let the violation of the city order happen, have the prayer take place with the mechitza and set a precedent. In the absence of the enforcement by city officials or by the police, do you feel like there was a proper response to this dilemma by those who opposed the situation? I think it's a very good question, and I don't have a you know a, a complete answer for that because it's clear that either way, you know, it was a problematic situation. It was clear that there is a complete disregard of the court's decision and really letting it pass without any response just means that it's going to happen over and over again. And on the other hand, of course, seeing those sites is really heartening during Yom Kippur and any other day. I think now people understand that this cannot happen again. I mean, and I'm talking about the religious extremist sites, that they have to understand that they cannot claim or speak on behalf of freedom of religion and their rights, while they themselves don't believe in those rights toward others. So I think the hypocrisy of their attitude is dramatic. I mean, look at the disruption for prayers of women of the wall and of the reform movement and the conservative movements at the Western Wall. I mean, this is happening every month for years, for decades. This happens by people who support Rosh Yudi and supported those prayers in Dizengoff Square. And they don't care about the fact that our prayers are being disrupted for, you know, just on a regular basis. So, you know, you cannot claim freedom of religion only when it's convenient for you. The same as you cannot claim that, you know, there is a status quo that should be left intact only when it's convenient for you. Because what we see usually is that the status quo can change, but only to the extremist side, not to the liberal side. So we have to create a new reality where we understand that we have a public sphere here, which has to be liberal because we're living in a democratic state. We're not living in a halachic state. We're not living in a, a state which can coerce people to do something that they don't believe in. We believe, of course, in freedom of religion. Okay, this is one of our main goals here, to really respect freedom of religion of all Israelis. But this does not mean that you can turn the public sphere into something completely different that does not respect the rights of everyone. I think that the liberal movements, the reform movements, really offers a place where you can really exercise your religion in a way that does not contradict your liberal values. But anyway, when we're talking about the public sphere... You cannot enforce, you know, gender segregation there. We also should remember, as the court said, there are over 500 Orthodox synagogues all around Tel Aviv. And of course, there there was segregated prayer with a mechitza, and that's completely fine. But when you go out of the synagogue to the public sphere, you cannot impose those restrictions on others. Just to play devil's advocate, can't the other side say the same thing is, you know, there are non-Orthodox synagogues where people can do mixed prayer together inside their synagogues. And, you know, just leads me to the conclusion. It's a sad conclusion, maybe. And I'm an American, so I come from where there's, you know, clear separation of church and state. As lovely and as necessary as these prayer services in public spaces, in public parks were during the COVID-19 period and the corona period, maybe it's time to reconsider the idea of them happening, you know, in the public square, in outdoors where everyone can see them and everyone can just, you know, walk up and do what they want. And we should revert back perhaps to having them in closed spaces in the synagogues or, you know, even in other buildings if you want a prayer service 
service for all for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and move them back inside? Do you think that's extreme? Well, first of all, talking about non-Orthodox prayer services, you have to understand that in Israel there are probably thousands, even 10,000 synagogues which are Orthodox. So in every city in Israel, every city, you have an Orthodox option. Non-Orthodox synagogues, you have maybe together for both movements, I would say around 150 for the high holidays. There are a lot of cities in which we conduct very long and Sisyphean legal struggles to demand prayer spaces for reform and conservative congregations, because for this, we have to fight, okay? That's always requires a struggle. So first of all, there is no option for everyone to pray in an orthodox manner, and there is an option to pray in a segregated manner. Now, as to your question about separation of religion and state, we believe that since Israel is a Jewish state, we don't believe in a complete separation between religion and state, but we do believe between separation between religion and politics. So the fact that we have now one stream of Judaism, orthodoxy, or actually it has become ultra-orthodoxy, which is part of the government, okay, the chief rabbinate, gives us absolute power and creates a situation which brings to, toward corruption and discrimination, which is built in in this reality. If there would have been a different reality where the state would allow Jewish practices, diverse Jewish practices, but in an equal manner and would fund them in an equal manner, I think we would have been in a different place. And that's the vision that we sort of strive for. So speaking of politics and our politicians, the government officials in the Netanyahu government certainly made hay of this incident. Prime Minister Netanyahu tweeted, to our astonishment, it was precisely in the Jewish state on the holiest day for the Jewish people that left-wing protesters rioted against Jews at their prayers. Yair Netanyahu, his son, wrote on Facebook that left-wingers riot against praying Jews. It's similar to how anti-Semites in Europe blame the Jews after committing pogroms. Our finance minister, Betzal Smotrich, called this a small minority of violent barn burners backed by Yair Lapid, the leader of the opposition. He said they lit a fire and desecrated the holy day. Our chief rabbi, Mayor Lau, also denounced the protests, calling them uh, incitement by haters of religion. And finally, the man who is in charge of the police who were supposed to enforce the decision of the Tel Aviv municipality, Itamar Ben-Gvir, he says in a statement that on this Yom Kippur, we saw haters attempt to banish Judaism from the public space. And he plans to hold a public prayer at Dizengoff Square on Thursday. I'm guessing there's going to be a mechitza separating men and women. How do those who support liberal Judaism respond to this on Thursday? What's going to happen? Happily, the vast majority of Israelis don't buy this. And they understand that the Judaism that this government is presenting is not the Judaism that they want to be identified with. And I think what the government is doing is a very, very bad message for Judaism. You know, our slogan, the reform movement slogan for this protest that we've been taking part of since the very beginning is we are protecting democracy in the name of Judaism because we believe that what the government is doing is not only undemocratic, it's also not Jewish. That's not our Judaism because we believe in a Judaism which is a compassionate and which believe that all of us were created in the image of God and therefore all of us are deserving of equal rights. And I'm pretty sure that talking about what happened in the last few days, you see that most Israelis are with us and not with this government. So on Thursday, there is going to be a big protest of a lot of organizations 
in Dizengoff Square. We are also going to be part of it. And we're going to pray for an Israel that is equal and democratic and Jewish as we believe it should be and not the extremist Judaism that this government is calling for. And I believe that we are on the way there because Israelis now understand that we're fighting really for the soul of the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. Ben Gvir basically repeats what happened on the eve of Yom Kippur, violating the policy of the Tel Aviv municipality and trying to have a gender-separated prayer with a mechitza. The strategy is going to be prayer versus prayer and not to disrupt that one, to try to correct what happened on Yom Kippur or try a different strategy? Or do you believe that perhaps the Tel Aviv municipality may now be more proactive in preventing Ben Gvir from doing what he wants to do? Hopefully they won't allow uh, Amechitza to be placed there. I think the answer should be raising a voice for the Israel that we want it to be and raising a voice against this violent image that they're portraying and that they're trying to promote. So I think that's the answer. And I think there will be a lot of people coming there and protesting against this as we have been protesting in the streets already praying with our feet in the streets for, for many, many weeks. We're going to do this also in Tel Aviv this week, and we'll continue to do it until everybody will, will understand that we will not allow Israel to become extremist as this government wants it to be. In the context of the wider fight against the slippery slope of gender segregations, all of these cases you've led and been involved in regarding public transportation, the latest is swimming holes and natural springs, right? The uh, environmental ministry wants to have gender separated hours in natural springs outdoors at cultural performances, which are government subsidized or government sponsored Does the fact that fighting over prayer spaces where there is some justification for certain proportion of the population, maybe even a majority of the population to want gender segregation, do you feel like it harms the overall battle against that slippery slope that the fight right now is about prayer and not about wider gender segregation? It's important to keep saying that the rule is equality and gender segregation should be allowed in very, very, very extreme circumstances. And it's true that, you know, with the Yom Kippur sort of made it very dramatic, but in the end, we're talking about the public sphere and it's really one of the most liberal places in Israel. And that's why I think it's not very hard to explain to people and people completely understand that a mechitza should not be allowed in a public square in Tel Aviv. So I think in this regard, it's not a bad service to the whole issue of gender segregation. I think some cases are, you know, more difficult and more complex than the others, but in general, we should say over and over again that the rule is always equality and we should allow gender segregation only in extreme circumstances such as you know swimming pools in very you know limited hours of course synagogues when it's you know in a closed space and i think that you know some people of course the government included thinks that the rule should be gender segregation and that you know we have to actually explain why we need to be deserving equal treatment so i think that we have to say over and over again and i think israeli public understands it now i can tell you that Really from the perspective of dealing with the issue for the past 20 years, it's clear that now the power of the public response can really make a change. And, you know, just to give you a small example, the, the fact that the pharmacy Nablak a few months ago put stickers on female images on hair products, and then there was such a fierce response from the public, they had to take it off after two days. So we really didn't have to take this to court because it was enough that public pressure was enough to change the behavior. So the fact that now people understand that this is dangerous, understand that we need to fight it, 
in and of itself is tremendous. We're really in a different place than we were, you know, 20 years ago. Happened because of this wider fight against judicial revolution and people understanding that the court has been the ultimate obstacle to the gender segregation. You've been doing this for 20 years. Has this been really good for your fight, this awakening of the Israeli liberal public over the issue of the judicial coup? Completely. You know, we have been really talking about those issues for so many years. At the beginning, when we just took to court the issue of the segregation on buses, Israelis did not understand the problem. You know, Americans kept saying, oh, my God, it's like Rosa Parks. But in Israel, people are like, so what? You know, it's a few bus lines. And it took people a while to understand the magnitude, the slippery slope and the dangers, both for ultra-Orthodox women and for society in general. And I think the fact that people have now awakened, not only around the judicial coup, but around what Israeli society should be. What is the new covenant that we want to have between the different parts of Israeli society and about the need to keep the public sphere a liberal sphere because we are a democracy. So this awakening has really opened the eyes of many Israelis to issues such as women's rights and religion state issues in particular. And in this regard, we've made a huge step forward in how much people are much more aware now. This is a really positive development. I guess my question is, will it last and how long it will last? Right now up on Haaretz, we have a piece by uh, Anshel Pfeffer, and he echoed a lot of the things that you just said today. He said, a large majority of Israeli Jews are not fundamentalist, but they have accepted that it is the fundamentalists who define Judaism in Israel because liberal Israel long ago gave up on the issue. They abandoned women who can't get a divorce at the mercy of the rabbinical courts. They have not joined in with women of the wall who have been fighting for equal access and prayer at Israel's central Jewish national site. They have surrendered without a fight so many battles for Israel's Jewish soul. And Anshel's pretty pessimistic. He writes that there is no way now to bridge the divide between those who saw the events of Yom Kippur in Tel Aviv and other cities as an attempt by religious fanatics to defy the high court ruling and force gender separation on a liberal city and those who saw their radical secularists preventing Jews from holding a sacred event. Israel's social fabric is too torn. That is Netanyahu's legacy and his government is trying to rend that fabric asunder. He thinks that replacing the Netanyahu government, blocking its constitutional coup will not be enough. To safeguard Israel's democracy, Israelis must fight also for the country's Jewish identity. And I guess he questions whether, from the past experience, from what we've seen over the past years, whether this is really something that Israelis are now finally ready to get down and fight for, as you described. Are you more optimistic than he is about the fact that the Israeli public is ready to do this? I agree with a lot of what he says, but I'm more optimistic. Look, there have been a time where people told me, I remember one of the legal advisors of one of the big health clinics in Israel, he said to me, well, if there would not be separate entrances to health clinics in ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, they would not come to this health clinic. And surprise, surprise, the attorney general decided this illegal. They stopped segregating different buildings and different entrances in health clinics in ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. And they kept coming because... Uh, once, you know, the extremists understand that they're not going to get what they want, then they understand, well, maybe we can't have it our way. I think that this awakening that has occurred for the past nine months, since it has gone for so long, okay, we're talking about 38 weeks, and it's not dying down. I think it has a lot of power to change the public sphere. I agree that it's wider than the judicial coup. We have to think really of a new contract between ourselves. Of course, having a constitution would be you know, the best scenario, but I agree that now the society is so polarized that it's hard to see this happening. But on the other hand, we have a lot of power 
in our hand. And I think the other side, mostly ultra-Orthodox and national Orthodox, have used their power very effectively in the past few years. But now they encounter a response of the Israeli public that is not willing to accept this anymore. And since I believe that people are going to go and stay in the streets as long as it takes, I'm more optimistic. We're going to face a difficult period. It's not easy. The sites that we've seen in Yom Kippur are not easy. But we have to keep on uh, fighting and raising our voice for a liberal Israel because, you know, that's the only country that we have. And as a reformed Jew and someone who works for the reform movement, do you see a place for the reforming conservative movements to take advantage of this uh, opportunity and to make this more than just a war between the orthodox and the secular and to try to open the eyes of Israelis as a possible opportunity for, as they say, more than one way to be Jewish? For sure. I can tell you that it's already happening. You know, there is a saying that people used to say that the synagogue most Israelis don't go to is an Orthodox synagogue, right? Because most Israelis are are secular or Masriti. They don't attend synagogues regularly. And this is starting to change, has been changing for the past decade. According to a survey of the Jewish Peoplehood Policy Institute from 2018, 13% of Israelis identify as either Reform or Conservative Jews. That's around 800,000 people. So we're talking about more and more Israelis who take responsibility and ownership on their Judaism and you know decide to have an egalitarian wedding or an egalitarian bar mitzvah and, of course, have their daughters go have a bat mitzvah in a Reform or Conservative synagogue and attend egalitarian synagogues for the holidays. And I think now it's definitely going to be even, you know, hopefully increase because I think more and more Israelis understand that there are other options. You don't have to really choose between democracy and Judaism, but you can really choose the Judaism that fits with, you know, what you believe in, with liberal values of complete equality and of really accepting anyone and everyone. And I think, you know, I attended services at my reform synagogue in Mavasel Etzion, and I think anybody who did, it was just such a beautiful and uplifting prayer, connecting you to Judaism, but in a way that does not alienate you from who you are and what you believe in. So in the sense, I think we have a lot of potential here to really show more and more Israelis. You don't have to choose, you know, it's not deciding whether you are a Democrat or a Jew. You can be both. You can go to the synagogue and still feel at home. And there are some people who, you know, would want it. Others will want, and that's completely fine. We're just working to make sure that Israel really offers those different alternatives. Because as you've said, we really believe that there is more than one way to be Jewish. And there is room really for all of us in the synagogue. Orly Erez Lichowski, Executive Director of the Israel Religious Action Center. Thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. Thank you so much. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Orly Erez Lichowski, Executive Director of the Israel Religious Action Center. Thanks to my producer, Nara Malkin, and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.